Bank of America coughs up millions, and the Fed is eyeing the weakest link. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. Welcome back from the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This here is David Hansen. David, I'm hearing that Amazon is now wants to use drones to deliver packages. That's great. Mm-hmm. But what I want to what I want what I want to know from you is what is the next iteration? What is the next big thing out of Amazon? That's already old news. The drones are pretty crazy. You got to watch the video of these things. They're insane. They got eight little I, helicopter things. The next thing that's coming, it's like they just read your mind and know what you want. You don't even have to order anything on Amazon anymore. You're just like, <laughs> oh, man, you don't even have to go to the website. I really want that toaster, and then you turn around and the toaster's there. That's you, what's next. You want a toaster? Is I that, need a toaster. I will get you a toaster. For Thank that. you. That's going to be your Christmas present. Thank you. All right, getting to the headlines now that we know David's Christmas present from me. Uh, we got Bloomberg here. B of A reaches $404 million mortgage deal with Freddie Mac. As the headline states, this is a 404 million dollar deal. Uh, this settles the, the mortgage complaints of Freddie Mac between 2000 and 2009 from Bank of America. And, yes. and Bank of America is the key there. This is only Bank of America. Back in early 2011, Bank of America settled with Freddie Mac for the countrywide claims. And we've said time and again on this show uh, how big of a difference it is between what happened at Bank of America versus what happened at Countrywide, which mm-hmm. Bank of America bought. The settlement for Countrywide was $1.28 billion with Freddie Mac alone. Mm-hmm. And so you, you got that $1.28 billion compared to this $404 million deal. Once again, Bank of America, bad. Mm-hmm. Did some bad things, but not that bad. The right. Countrywide, oh, it was just so bad. And, and this lawsuit or this settlement was for reps and warranties, basically saying that Bank of America made loans. They said they were good. They sold them to Freddie Mac. Turns out Freddie Mac says, hey, those weren't good. You need ah, to buy those so back. So this isn't comparable to the J.P. Morgan $13 billion settlement. Don't look at the $400 million and say, how is that, that so I have a problem with that $13 billion. Not to sidetrack us here, but everybody talks about the $13 billion. It's that a bunch was, of stuff. Yeah, it's a whole – the kitchen sink is in there. Right. Sorry, go ahead. But, yeah, it's not directly – comparable to J.P. Morgan. Don't look at this and say, wow, Bank of America is getting an awesome deal. Right, that right. litigation is still outstanding, and that, that involves mortgage-backed securities that Bank of America sold to the GSC. So that is still outstanding. This is not over yet. Bank of America done with litigation and lawsuits? No. But with the reps and warranties, <laughs> no. with the reps and warranties, this pretty much wraps up that part of the lawsuit. We still have the other stuff outstanding. Next headline. All right, next headline going to the Wall Street Journal. Oh, we're going to the Financial Times. This one is... Bank of Bird in Hand takes to the skies. Now, this is the first new bank to be launched in the U.S. in nearly three years. And it's aiming at an interesting demographic, um, the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country. So the Amish investors here. From, from, the, from the article, they say, Bank of Bird in Hand, backed by Amish investors and based in Lancaster County in the heart of Pennsylvania's Dutch country, is opening after raising $17 million in capital. Now, this is... Obviously, a very, very small bank. It's the first de novo bank since right. 2010. We haven't seen a lot of these. And as the article points out, a lot of it is because it's really hard for mm-hmm. banks to operate profitably right now with interest rates as low as they are. Right. And we, when we say de novo, that's basically, I guess it's an industry term. But brand new. Yeah, brand new. Yeah. Brand new bank coming out of the ground. Grand opening. Yes. Very, uh, very exciting. 
The, what I find interesting about the bird in hand story is, and this is another quote from the article, it says, The name? Bird, well, yeah, <laughs> besides, the, besides the name. Bank of Bird in Hand serves a niche market in a geographically limited area. And I think that's the key here. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go out on a limb and go out on a limb and there you go. <laughs> <boom. you> <laughs> I'm not gonna go out on a limb and predict whether Bird in Hand will be successful or not. A lot of that's gonna be uh, contingent on on management and who they're lending to and whatnot. But the key here is that they have a target audience, and and when we think about competitive advantages for banks. That's a key one: is knowing the demographic that you're going to serve, having you know having a, a customer base that's going to come back to you again and again. Yeah, I mean, if you just take a step back in the industry as a whole, it's encouraging that a bank was started. Let's just we can leave it at that. It's encouraging for the Fine. industry as a whole that people are still think there's opportunities. You want to discount everything else that I just said? Yeah. All that great stuff I just gave our viewers about I, competitive I discount everything advantage. You, say. Uh, you you just weren't listening. If you were listening, you would have known how great that was. Final headline of the day: We've got Fed Eyes Financial Systems. Weak link, and that weak link, David, is repo lending. Very exciting. And this is the stuff that you could argue brought down Lehman Brothers, relying too much on short-term lending, almost mm-hmm. overnight lending. And when we talk about repo, it's it's secured lending, so there's securities that are kind of serving as collateral there. But the worry is when those start to go down in value, things can freeze up, and this can really hurt the banking system and the financial system as a whole. That's exactly what we saw in 2008. The Fed is trying to figure out ways to make it make us less dependent on this short-term funding. They don't have a, a clear plan in place, but in this article, they're talking more about the big banks and how they rely on the repo funding. So I apologize to our viewers here that I don't have a table. Our listeners, I guess, won't care one way or the other. But back in 2008, the, the final quarterly report from Lehman Brothers, if we're thinking about Lehman Brothers as the, the benchmark mm-hmm. for overuse of short-term uh, funding and short-term lending, uh, 27% of Lehman Brothers' assets were in repo, repo loans. 21% of Lehman Brothers' liabilities, so their borrowing, was through short-term repo lines. For the banks, they, they kind of lump, lump a few different things in there, but most of, most of what I'm accounting for here uh, involves the repos. So back in 2008, Bank of America, 4, 4.5%, so about 5% of assets, repo, mm-hmm. uh, repo loans, Almost 13% of funding was through repo loans. So 5%, 13%. Citigroup, about 10% of assets, 11% of liabilities. JP Morgan, just over 9% of assets, just under 10% of liabilities. Wells Fargo, a little bit more opaque, so the, the assets weren't quite as clear, about 9% of liabilities. Again, that's all back in 2008. It's all pretty similar. Relatively similar. JP Morgan, on the lower side versus Bank of America and Citigroup, Again, we can look back and remember that J.P. Morgan didn't run into nearly the problems. Obviously, Wells Fargo, the lowest of the group. The most recent quarter, Bank of America, 10% of assets in, in, in repo, repo loans, about 12% of liabilities. Citigroup, 14.4% and almost 13%. J.P. Morgan, uh, 9.6%, 9.7% assets, liabilities. Finally, Wells Fargo, 12% of assets, 4% of liabilities. So putting this all together, I think one of the takeaways is that in some cases, in most cases here, it's pretty similar between 2008 mm-hmm. and today with these big banks. Uh, Bank of America's assets, the amount of lending that it's doing on the repo side has gone up. Maybe not all that surprising because you fold in Merrill Lynch there. Yep. Um, J.P. Morgan, interestingly, still much lower than Bank of America and Citigroup and very similar to where it was at in 2008. 
Uh, I think a lot of people think of J.P. Morgan as a riskier bank. This is one way in which it, it doesn't look uh, riskier than the other two. Um, and one of the things that, that I think is particularly notable is that, that across the board we're seeing a little bit less funding, so a little bit less of the liabilities coming from these repo lines, the short-term mm-hmm. lines, but a little bit more uh, lending, right. so, so, so offering more credit mm-hmm. through these. And, and I know that you've got a point there yep. that kind of dovetails with that. Yeah, and one of the other industries that we talk about that is getting the lending there are the mortgage REITs out there, and the agency uh, mortgage REITs use a lot of leverage, and that leverage is short-term repo funding. And that can be scary if that market freezes up. That can be a problem, but one of the reasons that it's less scary is that the collateral that the banks are, are accepting there are usually agency mortgage-backed securities that are pretty safe securities. Mm-hmm. They're essentially U.S. government debt there. Uh, so or for mortgage REITs like Annaly, like American Capital Agency, that do almost exclusively agency mortgage-backed securities, they use that type of funding. But it's, it's risky, but it's not crazy risky. They're not, they're not putting up collateral that's completely opaque that no one knows what it's worth. Sure. All right, moving on to our focus for today. We're sort of at the end of earnings season, and that also means that we're basically at the end of 13F reporting season. We're almost to the fourth quarter of earnings season. I mean, it yeah, turns over so true. fast. Yeah. One more month. These quarters grow up so quickly. Uh, 13F, for, for, for those that, that aren't familiar with 13F reporting season, all the financial companies that, that own stocks or you know, thinking about mutual funds, thinking about hedge funds, um, and, and then companies like Berkshire Hathaway and Markel uh, that own a lot of securities, well, I guess we could say insurance companies, mm-hmm. both of those are insurance companies, that own securities, they have to report in, in these 13F filings to the SEC, letting the SEC and letting investors know what are the stocks that they own. So this is a great time for investors to tune into these and see what some very ta- what the talented uh, investors out there are doing. Not necessarily to just go and copy right. what a, what a uh, what a Tom Gainer at Markel is doing or, or what uh, Buffett's doing over at Berkshire, but to tune in and, and then to, to see what they're doing and, and then maybe do some more analysis on your own and figure out if that's a good idea for your own portfolio. Mm-hmm. So I know you've got a few that you were looking at. I've got a few here that I was looking at. So maybe we'll do a little back and forth cool. here. I'll start out with Berkshire because we can't not cover Berkshire. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that most Buffett fans have already heard what Berkshire's done this quarter. But added a position in ExxonMobil. This has been a position that they've been built that, that the company's been building for a while. This is a Buffett position. They, they don't really say specifically what's a Buffett position, not right. this is a Buffett position. Uh, ExxonMobil, on the other side of the coin, eliminated uh, stock in uh, ConocoPhillips. So this is an interesting kind of pairs trade. If you're looking at the two, sell ConocoPhillips, buy ExxonMobil. Pairs trade. Pairs, yeah, you didn't, know, you didn't know that I was a short-term a trader. trader. Yeah, I know. CNBC is going to be calling me I for like fast it. money now. Uh, also added uh, to the to the very large position in Davida. Mm. This this is not a Buffett position. Right. Uh, almost assuredly, uh, most likely this is from Ted Wexler. This was a very large position in his hedge fund before he came over to work at Berkshire. Uh, also sold a bunch of stock in Tesco, the overseas uh, grocery giant. There you go. Uh, one of the ones that that I like to take a look at. There's not a ton of quarterly moves in this one, and that's Fairholme Capital Management. That's Bruce Berkowitz. It's really just more interesting to see how concentrated this portfolio is. 65% of the portfolio in AIG and Bank of America. Mm-hmm. So just a very unique perspective there 
this isn't maybe one to go in, like you said, and blindly follow, say, oh, he's doing that. I'm going to put 65% of my portfolio in there. But he's got a very interesting strategy in terms of how he sees value. So I think it's an interesting one to pull up and kind of see where does his portfolio sit? What is he thinking about the market right now? So that's one that's always on my list. Well, Fairhome was the number two on my list. There I mean, it it's, it's, it's makes sense that it's on our radar because of the big positions there. During the quarter added a whole bunch more Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac preferred shares, preferred shares. And, and I know there was some talk early on that when Berkowitz was buying the preferred shares of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that he also bought some common shares. Mm-hmm. He did, and then sold them. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is almost, exclu- as far as I could tell, almost exclusively now a, a, a bet on the preferred shares of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And we actually saw the, the proposal that Berkowitz made to kind of roll those over into a new company. Also added some more Sears Holdings. Sold a little bit of AIG and Bank of America. Maybe not too surprising given the overwriting right. in there. Uh, maybe making some room for that mm-hmm. big Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac preferred play. Um, my next one? Yeah, go for All it. All right. You mentioned it when we, I'm when not we, stopping when we kicked off, and that's, that's Markel and Tom Gaynor, who's managing that portfolio over there. And this is an interesting one contrasted to Fairhome. It's much more diversified. A lot of stocks in this portfolio. And there is some concentration at the top. 20% of the portfolio is in Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, This is total here. 20% is in Berkshire, Brookfield Asset Management, and Fairfax Financial Holdings. Mm -hmm. So there's some concentration in there, but it's a little bit different because all three of those companies are diversified in their own right. We talk about Berkshire Hathaway. It's essentially an index fund. Kind of. It, kind right. of. it spans multiple areas of the economy. Or at least so. a mutual fund. So 20% of the Markel portfolio in there is in those three holdings, but those are very diversified as well. So Gainer, a very interesting one. He's, he's a value guy, but he's also not afraid to invest in more some growth companies. Mm-hmm. He's not, he's not a, a cigarette butt or a cigar butt uh, type investor there. Or so. cigarette. Either he's either kind of a, he, yeah. He's, he's not both. picking things up off the street. And nobody likes to do no, that. Nobody, he's nobody a, does. We, gross. I don't know if he would brand himself that, but he, he's a little bit of a foolish investor, so he, it'll be interesting to see kind of what he's holding. And other than Berkshire Hathaway, his next biggest holding is CarMax there. So maybe just one to, to look into and read up more. A lot of buybacks there at CarMax. Big, a lot of buybacks. Big into the buybacks. My final one... Uh, this is uh, Pabrai, Manish Pabrai, mm-hmm. his funds. Uh, not much to report here. No changes in the portfolio. That's not too surprising if you're familiar with uh, Manish Pabrai. Uh, again, a very concentrated portfolio here, even more concentrated maybe than, than Fair, uh, Fairhome. Uh, and he just doesn't do a lot of trading, Doesn't uh, picks his positions and holds them, looks for, for big movements. Among the top holdings, this goes to... To you and me, apparently either Pabrai has been listening to our show or maybe sure. we've been, we've been te- uh, tele- communicating? telecommunicating. <laughs> I was struggling with that word. I don't even know if that's the right word. It's probably not. <laughs> Got some Star Trek thing going on with uh, Manish Pabrai. Bank of America, Citigroup, and Goldman Sachs all among Pabrai's top holdings. All right. My last one I'll say quick is uh, Baupost Group, Seth Klarman. Oh, good one. The guy's a genius, so one to put on your radar. There you go. Dude, that's, that's, all all you, that's all I have to say. Also, a very concentrated portfolio <laughs> at the top there. So, okay. one to check out. And you can, get, you can find these on SEC's website, but there's also a website that's pretty easy to navigate. It's called whalewisdom.com. It's another easy one to just go in and check some stuff out. So, there you go. Thanks for that enlightening report. On You're Seth welcome. <laughs> all right. 
Let's head over to the mailbag. We've got an email address for all of our viewers and listeners, WTMI at fool.com. We love getting emails, love getting questions uh, and comments and, you know, complaints. Today's email, we've got Joe Begley emailing us. I'm a college student studying abroad in China. Nice. And I listen to your podcast every day to keep me updated. You guys are great. You're great, Joe. I don't, I don't disagree. And yes, Joe, you're great. I'm 20 and I've been mock trading for years. When I get back to the U.S. in two weeks, I'm going to manage $10,000 of my college fund. I can buy whatever I want. With that amount of money, how do I diversify and be safe while getting upside? I should say off the top, I'm not sure. He didn't say in his email when he says $10,000 of my college fund. I don't know if that's $10,000 that goes to paying for his college or his college has some sort of investment fund oh, that they allow their students. That's a good point. So that could be different. I assume the latter. I would assume the latter, too. But if it's actual college fund, I would be maybe a little conservative yeah, I wouldn't, if you're going to need to spend. Well, I wouldn't. Very I'm not even sure that I'd put that into the stock market. It, right. if, if that's money that Joe needs to pay for his college. Which he's in right now. Yeah, exactly. Generally speaking, and this is, this is something that, that I say for myself, and I think this is something you hear all over Fooldom. If you need the funds within the next five years, really not the best idea to put into the stock market because it's tough to, it's tough to yeah. say when the next downturn is going to be, and, and otherwise you're kind of timing the market. Yeah, so we'll assume it's we'll assume yeah. fund fund. So did you have any quick thoughts on that? Well, it, you know, it, it really depends on what, what type of investor and, and what comfort levels you, are, you have and what you're trying to achieve with, the, uh, with what you're investing. I mean, a, a retiree is going to have a much different outlook on, on this than somebody else. Uh, personally, I don't like having a very broad, wide diversification in my, uh, in my stock investments, in my individual stock investments. I think I, I know somebody had mentioned uh, one time in an email to us that it looks like I own a ton of different yep. stocks as listed on, on Motley Fool. But the concentration of where I have the money in those stocks um, is, is a lot more concentrated than, than what it looks like. With $10,000, I would probably not go further than 10 stocks, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think going beyond that, you're probably over-diversified. And particularly if you're going to end up uh, paying any sort of trading fees on that, uh, you're going to get eaten up a little bit by fees yeah. just going in any smaller increments of $1,000 a piece. Um, and, and I think 10 different stocks gives you ample opportunity to diversify uh, across there. Yeah, and we mentioned just in our last segment how Markel owns stocks that are kind of diversified in their own right. If you look at Berkshire Hathaway, Brookfield, Fairfax, those are all big companies that are in multiple areas. So they're individual stocks, but you're getting diversified within those companies. So maybe those are the type of companies that, that Joe might want to look into. On the, on the low side, I think five five stocks mm-hmm. might be reasonable um, with, with that kind of size of a portfolio. And again, depends on the, the trading commissions that you have to pay. If you don't have to pay trading commissions, you have a little bit more of uh, leeway there mm-hmm. because you set yourself up a higher and higher bar that you have to leap over if you're paying trading commissions on smaller position right. sizes. Um, Number one position, if you were investing a college fund right now, for a college fund, and again, not... I don't own it, but it would probably be Berkshire. uh, How do you still not own Berkshire? Moving on. Moving on. Jeez. All right, game for today. We've got a little making the grade. Uh, Again, with this game, what what we do, present a couple scenarios, and then draw our beautiful, wonderful, artistic renderings illustrating our thoughts on the scenario. First scenario, selling stocks to book capital losses. 
David, as we get towards the end of the year, a lot of people sitting on losing positions are thinking about selling them to, uh, to, to reap those capital losses for tax time. All right. Uh, for those listening, they're not going to be able to see this, but it kind of looks like a ghost, but it's not. It's a guy, it's a guy shrugging his shoulders there, and he's saying, ah, I'm not sure. Um, and that's my grade. It's not really a grade. It's more of a, it really depends on the situation, and I think you have to look at it at a company basis. You look at the, the stocks that are down big this year, the mortgage rates, Armour Residential, American Capital Agency, down big. People are my, might be wondering, should I sell these things and just book the losses? I think you, if you have another opportunity that you're more comfortable with, you think has better upside, then you should do it. But if not, if you're just selling to book the capital losses, I say, nah, it doesn't make sense. Nah. What do you think? <laughs> These Sharpies are really strong smelling. That's what I think. <laughs> That's why get, my picture's so bad. get high on this show. I've just got a question mark here. I'm, maybe it's because it's Monday. I didn't get cre- too creative. Here's the thing. Selling just to book a capital loss, just because you're thinking, oh, I'm down in this position, selling for, for solely that reason, I, I don't think is really that great of an idea. Yeah. Um, particularly when we're thinking in increments of five and ten years, we want to be holding these stocks for long term if we believe in them. But at the end of the year, if if thinking about capital losses gets you to revisit and think about, well, this this stock is not doing well. How is the company doing? Do I still believe in it? Then 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 if you if you settle on the fact that this is this company really isn't delivering the way I thought it would, mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and sell it. Then that can be a reasonable. Uh, reasonable outcome. All right. Next scenario. Next scenario. A bank decides to swear off buybacks and only issues dividends. David, your picture. We've talked in the past about how buybacks can be can be great if you have a, a person at the top that's a great capital allocator and does it at the right times. But on the whole, that doesn't happen. So I'm giving this an eight plus. The the dividend is a <laughs> little bit safer of a move there. An eight plus. Eight yes, I'm plus. combining it. There, there are times where buybacks are great, but if we look at a bank like New York Community Bank, it's been a, a beast just giving out dividends and dividends and dividends, and it kind of puts it on the shareholders to whether to reinvest those. Could have been successful doing buybacks, but most of the time, I'd probably prefer having a dividend than a huge buyback program. What do you say? Um, going bo- a little boring again, too. Going B minus. Yeah, I, I'm not as stoked about it as you are. The the thing is, is that I'd rather I'd like to be invested in a bank or any company that has executives at the top that are good capital allocators. I, I want to be able to trust that they know what to do with with the, the money that the company is making. And if I have to be really excited about the fact that they're only going to pay dividends because they're too, uh, how's the nice? What's the nice? Worried word? to mess this? up. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- that I can't trust them. Uh, as to when to uh, when, when to deploy share buybacks, that's maybe not the company that I want to invest in in the mm-hmm. first place. But at the same time, the, the the sorry fact is is that they usually will screw up buybacks for the most part. So B minus. All right, I'm okay with it. Last scenario. Final scenario. David, your Thanksgiving spread. My Thanksgiving spread How did was, that was quite tasty. So this is a picture of me. And I'm, I'm sitting down there, my stomach, my shirt is too small for my body, <laughs> belly button is coming out of the shirt, eyes are X'd out as if I'm dead, but I'm smiling. Very good Thanksgiving. How was yours? I have, oh wow, that, you, you, you explained that, that way too fast, so I didn't have time. This, is, this, would have been, this would have been a work of art, that would have been a Picasso, but I didn't have enough time. <laughs> that is person? me, yep, that is me on the couch, snoozing, those are Z's coming out. 
because I ate so much good food. There's a sweet potato casserole mm. with, uh, with, there's coconut in it, some brown sugar, pecans. Oh, man, it was Pecans so... or pecans? What are you? You're a pecan man? Well, apparently. All right. Pecans. <laughs> are, you gonna, are you trying to correct me now? On, I'm on, both. I don't I, know. I haven't decided. You go either way. Yeah, it was delicious. And then I got to, uh, to sleep on the couch, doze, watch a little football. Nothing wrong with that. There you go. Finishing out, Twitter sphere. David, what is our first tweet? Our first tweet is from Crowd Turtle. He says, Circle of competence involves the assessing of probabilities more than it involves the deep intricacies of businesses. And we talk about Warren Buffett. His circle of competence, you could say, is the financial sector. And people would mm-hmm. say, how does he understand banks? They're so complicated. And I think that tweet hits it right on the head there. It's, it's very hard to understand the intricacies of Bank of America and Citigroup, but Buffett understands the probabilities and the economics of the businesses. So sometimes that's more important than understanding how a CDO squared works and how the bank makes money. So It's like a question we got last week that was kind of saying, how is it that Buffett could be considered a great investor when he was invested in banks before the financial yep. crisis? And I think that goes a lot to it. There you go. Second tweet. Final tweet. Final tweet. We've got Wouter Kleefstra, one of our loyal... Uh, listeners, and here is, uh, he's tweeting at us, at TMF Financials, good you did not use Bitcoin to buy turkey. Bitcoin over $1,100, you'll be able to buy 1,000 turkeys by next Thanksgiving. First, let me point out, Wooter tweeted at us, we do have, we're on Twitter, that's at TMF Financials. David, are you, we, we had a, a Thanksgiving special, a yes. Bitcoin Thanksgiving special. Our viewers and listeners can find that online. It's called a very Bitcoin Thanksgiving. We tweeted it as well. We tweeted it as well. Uh, are you glad that we didn't have the opportunity to spend that Bitcoin? I kind of wish we did spend it and then had a page tracking how much our Thanksgiving dinner cost us. I think that would have been cool. So over like next 10 years, we've been like, that Thanksgiving actually cost them a million dollars. I thought that would have been, maybe we should do that next year. Well, maybe that's what, what you think it would have cost us. Are you so glad you we are, didn't? I, I don't care one way or the other. I, I think maybe the, the, the turkey will be worth more than Bitcoin five years from now. Well, maybe we'll do something for Christmas since we still have our point. I think, one, we, two I think we have to do something for Christmas. Maybe we'll get you that toaster. Oh, thank you. We'll get you that toaster you've always wanted. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right, that's our show for today. Uh, like I said, you can tweet us at TMF Financials. You can email us, WTMI at fool.com. Uh, that's all we've got. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.